Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. It's a small book. It's way at the end of the Bible. Go back to the index. Go to the book of Revelation. Don't go too fast. And then Jude. If you don't own a Bible, we probably have plenty of them around here. Take a Bible. I mean, don't take it from somebody else. Uh, but take, take a Bible. Uh, we want everyone to have God's word. I'm going to dive right into reading God's word. From the beginning, even though our text comes from chat, uh, verses 5 uh, through 17, uh, 16. God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea 
casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This too is God's word. Ungodly church people will be eternally judged. You don't necessarily put those two kind of phrases together, ungodly and church, but to sort of modernize the sense of this text and what it means, if it has any meaning at all, for 2023, it is that ungodly church people will be eternally judged. So it begs to say, or it just assumes the fact that, well, ungodly people will be judged. So outside of the church, yes, we understand that, though it may not be an acceptable kind of en vogue um, a doctrine to modern sensibilities, it is uh, also people inside the church. So our text lays out the characteristics and consequences of ungodly church people, a.k.a. let's call them apostates. So here in our text, a very difficult text uh, on multiple levels, uh, I want us to see three expectations of apostasy. Apostasy meaning uh, that we, we drift, we wander, we leave. That's the religious term uh, for those who defect from faith. And particularly in this text, it is for those who defect from Christian faith. Three expectations of apostasy simply are destruction, self-assertion, and godlessness. So there's a great deal of overlap, as you probably picked up on as, as, as we read this text. But I think what Jude wants to do is to impress the importance of contending for the biblical faith through a tone of intensity. So he's trying to communicate something to you, to us, in a particular tone. And my job as a minister of the gospel and a minister of the word is not to tone down the text, to kind of mute it and muffle it because it might seem a little bit offensive and it might seem even so, so harsh. And one of the ways that you deliver intensity, just in life in general, is through repetition or teaching the same idea with different words and examples. This is exactly what Jude does. All right, so I can't say that the way I've broken this down and the way I'm going to talk about this text is, is like the creme of the creme example of how to preach the book of Jude. I'm trying, folks. So hang with me, pray for me, and pray for yourselves as we dive in to this text on what to expect in apostasy. So the three uh, three expectations of apostasy. The first one comes in verses 5 through 10. The thing that he right out of the gate says is destruction. 
And he does so by first reminding his readers, reminding church people of Jewish history. We see that in verses 5 through 7. So, uh, so he, says, con- he said, contend for the faith. There are people who are creeping into your churches. And then he goes and he says, oh, I want to remind you of something. I wanted to really write to you about how glorious our salvation is, but man, y'all are being sidetracked a little bit. So we, we need to take care of that, all right? And so I want to remind you something that you already know about. Isn't that something that often in the Bible, we get all these reminders about things we already know. If the Bible has a lot of that going on, I mean, how much should we pay attention to that same, to the sentiment and to all the repetitions that take place, that kind of intensity? These are cautionary lessons from Jewish history. The first one comes from the Exodus generation, meaning that generation of people, of God's people, that had been bound and captive in the land of Egypt for 400 years and finally got their break by the hand of God, by the Spirit of God, the angel of death, preceded by all the different plagues that led them out of Egypt once and for all, at least physically. And it says here, this is surprising, and I need, you need to really just hang on to sort of the tension of this text. It says that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, then what's the next phrase? Afterward, destroyed. That doesn't sound like my Jesus. You know, my little precious moments figurines type Jesus. Yes, I love Jesus as my Savior, but do you love him as a judge? Because that's what the Bible is teaching here. So it's, it's speaking of the fact that Jesus saves and Jesus judges. The generation that came out of Egypt, all of them for the most part, was destroyed. Why? Well, it's right there in the text, because they did not believe. So, I mean, if you come to our, our, our gatherings on Wednesday nights, we are going through the book of Deuteronomy which is reflective of that time period in Israel's history. This is a real lesson. And if you're a Jew reading this book, which Jude is Jesus's like half-brother or cousin, uh, very familiar. So he's, he's piling on a lot of, uh, of Jewish like, history. He's, I shouldn't say he's piling it on, but he's also compacting it. So he's saying that Jesus saves, clearly. He physically saved Israel out of Egypt, boom, on the way out into the promised land. But on the way to the promised land, who takes the credit for those people dying and being destroyed? Jesus. The eternal Son of God, before he, in in a sense, incarnated as that sweet baby in a manger, was ever present and ever at work, and is credited as being judge even before the book of Revelation, uh, I think, was written. They were judged because they did not believe. Now hear this, friends. Right right out of the gates, I think we get something that you can go home with today. And it's a sober reminder that just because you identify with or belong to the right religious community doesn't mean that you can automatically escape God's, God's judgment in the future. That's hard to say. It's not what I would naturally want to say. What I think I'd love to say is that, well, hey, if you just identify with the church, you should be good to go. If you're basically in the, in the same ballpark, and theistic, Trinitarian, maybe, um, you know, you should be good to go. But if the people of God 
God's own people were destroyed for their unbelief. Does that change anything for people on this side of history? If we identify with Christianity and Trinitarianism and a good creeds and confessions, does that mean that we are spared God's future eternal judgment? Now, let me turn the heat up on this and say it in fewer words, uh, using even the words of the text that not all whom Jesus saves are forever kept. Now, you say that's contradictory to the text. Yes, and as a matter of fact, it is. If you look at this word kept, it's mentioned about five times in three different words. The word reserved in our text, um, kept, I believe. So uh, there's the idea at the beginning where God keeps his people. And then at the end of the, of the, of the text of the book, God keeps his people. Verse 21, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. So which is it, Will? The angels are kept or reserved. People are reserved and kept for destruction. What, what are you saying? Is this, see, this is why I don't like the Bible, Will. It's because it has so many seeming contradictions. It doesn't hold up. No, understand that not all who Jesus physically keeps are spiritually kept. I've heard so often people of religious persuasions talk about about God keeping them. And I don't want to minimize the experiences that you've had with close cuts, close encounters with death or illness or this or that trial that you credit rightly to God for keeping you from. But guess what? There are a lot of people who don't share your Christian faith or your general beliefs in God who who also have been saved from cancer, car accidents, danger, you name it. So was the people of God, was Israel kept from further oppression and abuse in Egypt? Clearly, yes. It was over. Good. Thank God. We're out of that one. That's sometimes how we approach God. The God who gets us out of pickles. The God who gets us out of our jams. That's salvation. And Judah's saying, no, that's not. So in that sense, not all whom Jesus saves, just like those Exodus people, are forever kept. Hang with me here. Because the kind of keeping that Jesus specializes in is a forever durable, secure keeping. See that in verse 1? Kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present blameless before the presence. That stumbling is not just a, oops, I messed up spiritually. No, we're talking about eternal stumbling, the kind of stumbling that, that imperils your soul forever. Blessed be he, now to him who is able to keep you from that. So there's no contradictions in this book. Just because you have survived a close encounter with whatever danger or fear that you have had does not mean that you are saved eternally. And just because you might baptize it or sprinkle it with, 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 with spiritual sayings and maybe even uh, one-liner one verses from the Bible doesn't mean that you have been saved from your worst problem. 
The point is, is that if you don't keep on believing, there is no chance that you will be kept eternally. Now, are you saying, Will, that salvation is like a 50-50 deal? Like I chip in my 50 and God will, or my 49 and God will chip in his 51. No, no, that's not what, it's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what this text is saying. But, but the, Jude wants you to believe in the tension. Because what we want is we want an easy Christianity. We want, we want God just to say it all, download it, tell me what to do, God, and I'll do that. God's like, no, no, when we're in a family, families don't roll that way. There's a lot of nuance. There's a, a lot of things you got to figure out in the process. And, and, and God is basically saying, you give me yourself, and I will keep you. You got to keep on believing. Plain and simple, you don't keep on believing, you don't make it. Jude now supports this reminder of the Exodus generation with two more familiar pieces of evidence from history that would have been familiar, especially to Jews. And the next one comes from the angelic realm. Sounds, it's really bizarre. There's a lot of bizarre in this text, folks, okay? I'm not saying that it isn't the word of God. I'm just admitting with you that there's some really difficult things here. So the next piece of evidence he brings up is that of angels who did not state within their own position of authority. Now, I think this is a commentary coming from an extra-biblical book. Hang with me here. An extra-biblical book, meaning that it's not in the 66 books of the Bible. It'd be, a, 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 it'd be an apocryphal book called First Enoch. Never read the book. It first came out in Ethiopic and then got translated. The original Ethiopic got lost, so nobody has that but I think the book exists somewhere. So there's this first Enoch book that apparently Jude had access to, and it had some commentary on these kinds of issues. But it's actually pretty clear, we think, that he's actually, it's a commentary on Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where you yet again have one of the most difficult passages of the Bible, where you have angels supposedly coming down from heaven and changing themselves into men to, to, to have sexual relations and procreate with, with women. The angels attracted to earthly women, okay? And that is in the same chapter where the whole thing with the worldwide flood started to go down. It was one more reason how bad the world was getting why God needed to destroy it first in the first place. So Jude is bringing this to attention. Now, I'm gonna have, I'll say this now, I'll probably say it again. Jude quotes from different Books, some of these books that are non-biblical books. And that's, you know what? That's actually okay. But I want us to remember that when, when a biblical writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, quotes from a non-biblical piece of literature, he isn't necessarily endorsing the whole work itself. He's, pull, he's pulling things that he believes in or that really happened or a combination of both and using it to shape his argument. So he's not off base here, even though he's dealing with a very difficult thing. He used another piece of literature. You say, oh, come on. Well, actually, the Apostle Paul does this in the book of Acts when he's preaching. You know what the Apostle Paul, he was a really good speaker. He actually used pagans and pagan literature to make his case for the God of the Bible, for the God of history. All right, so he was using things that people were familiar with as an appeal, not as an endorsement. You understand that? He's not endorsing, you know, Enoch. So please do not go and say, you know what? Pastor Will just put me on to, like, reading the Apocrypha. I'm going to start the Apocrypha 
for my Bible reading time. No, that's not what I'm saying. Do it if you're curious. But <laughs> And then the, the third strand of evidence or historical uh, history as a cautionary lesson is that of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was is, is in the Bible, Genesis chapter 19. Our text here says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, speaking of angels, Sodom and Gomorrah was not friendly to angels, if you read Genesis 19. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So there's sexual immorality, there's homosexuality, there's a lack of hospitality. Whatever they did was bad enough to get them leveled and burned. And the point isn't to, to bring up an old issue again and, and, and riff on that a little bit. What he's actually trying to do is raise the stakes and, and create a chain, create a, a link between these historical instances of unbelief, of wandering, of straying. Sodom and Gomorrah strayed from the moral code, if you will. And what they could be a good example of, it's what it says here, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. All right. So now in verses 8 to 10, Jude brings it home, where he applies it to real-time apostates or ungodly church people. And really what one of the senses you get from this book is that history repeats itself. This is nothing new under the sun. Sinners continue sinning. Ungodly church people keep on infecting churches. This has been happening for millennia. Don't be surprised by this. Your generation will never be exempt from this kind of thing. That's why this book is in the Bible, because we need these verses. We need this guidance and instruction. We need the reminders from history that this will happen again. Verse 8 is perhaps a mirror on the accusations that came before. So he, he says, um, yet in like manner, these people also, he's talking about these people. It's kind of a, it's just a very general term. These guys, whoever these people are, he's not really naming names. These people also relying on their dreams Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones that might have something to do with the verses that came before. There's nothing new under the sun. These people, the people who are infiltrating the church, these religious interlopers are coming in and indulging themselves. They probably were immoral to some degree or another, relying on their dreams, Probably not on written revelation from God. One of the signs of apostasy in the church in any generation is this, is a, is an, of a rejection of authority. I say, hey, oh man, I don't, I don't reject authority. I see the value of it. But, but can we maybe soften that a little bit and say questioning authority? Now you say, I don't question authority. Or you're like, yeah, that's me. I'm totally that person. All right, wherever you are, you are at on that, here's the thing. You come out of the womb questioning authority. You come out being a natural rebel. Somebody who questions, well, you might be submissive at times. You might be a law keeper. But in the life of the church, the reason why churches go bad 
is not necessarily because of the influence on the outside, but because of the influences on the inside. It often does start in, with pastors and deacons and church leaders. They question the authority of Scripture. Did God really say? And so it comes to verse 9, which is another challenging piece. He said, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And then you're flipping back in your Bible, and you're trying to find, where is that again in the Bible? It's not. All right. Here's another, here's another time when the Jude, who had access to an apocryphal work called the Assumption or the Testament of Moses that no longer exists, okay, because it's not necessarily important enough to exist, but he, he had uh, this access to this work, all right? According to the apocryphal tradition, Michael the archangel, in command of God, was going to bury the body of Moses, remember, who did not get to go over to the promised land. So he, he got, it says, it says that God buried Moses. So he got Michael to do his dirty work? I guess so. So Michael the archangel presumably is going to bury the body of Moses, but along comes Satan. Now, it's not unusual for two angels to hang out together, whether uh, to, to do something together or to mix it up a little bit. And in this case, potentially, potentially, Satan is like, I'm not letting Moses get buried just like that, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get this away from from God. And in the Testament, in this, in this work, and it makes sense because Satan rolls this way. Satan would have been hurling accusations at the many failures of Moses over his lifetime. The guilt, perhaps, for killing an Egyptian. And all the things that Moses did to not deserve to go into the promised land. Guess what? Satan is always around to accuse us of not inheriting the promises. So as bizarre as this may sound, about two big angels going at it, disputing about some old guy's body, the point is, is that Satan is very, very good at accusing. But here's the thing. That's not even the point. Michael knew his place as the archangel. Michael's place as the archangel was not to judge. He knew that judgment is for God. So he wouldn't even judge Satan. He wouldn't cast a blasphemous judgment or an accusation against Satan. He would just, he just said, the Lord rebuke you, which is actually harking back to Zechariah chapter three. This is uncanny. You can write this in and go, go look at it later. In Zechariah chapter three, you have Joshua the high priest who's all dirty. The high priest shouldn't be dirty. And along comes Satan to accuse Joshua the priest. Now, Satan rightly accused him. He's dirty. And in that text, Michael wasn't in there. It says that the Lord said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And he gave Joshua a new set of clothes, a new righteousness. The point is that if an angel like Michael wouldn't even speak about another angel, fallen though he may be, no human Get this, no human is in their league or has the depth to write off or speculate about angels where God has not spoken about it. And so one of the, one of the things you pick up about 
apostates, about ungodly church peoples. They, they speculate and build arguments on things that, I'm not saying that they don't matter, but things that they don't really know about. They, they're out of their league. They shouldn't be talking about it. And then that's why in verse 10, he says, these mockers don't understand angels. This is great. A great line. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Basically, it's this. They had nothing to speak about when it comes to the celestial realm. But they understood what physical appetite was. And apostates live according to physical appetites. Whether they indulge their flesh or whether they deny their flesh, they're apostate. And they have no reason to be speaking. So friends, I'm going to bring it down to this in terms of destruction being one of the expectations of apostasy. All who stray, all who wander, all who deconstruct, no matter the era, no matter the country, no matter the church background, all will face destruction. And we're not saying just like, oh, I drowned in the Red Sea type of destruction. No, we are talking about eternal fire destruction. This is where you say, oh, okay, you evangelicals actually believe in the fire bit. Well, we believe in the fire bit because, well, Jesus spoke about it a lot, but we're right here, and Judah's echoing Jesus, and he's talking about this fire, this punishment by fire. So there is such a thing as eternal conscious torment that people who do not believe suffer. I want you, I want, I want to, you to let that hit you. That every time you take a breath, two people somewhere in the world die. And they go somewhere. Their souls go somewhere. They either go to be with Jesus Christ in heaven. Maybe they're surprised that, oh, this hell that I denied all my life is actually, actually real. See, you can't just wish hell away. And, and just call it, oh, that's the, the fanaticism of, of Bible thumpers, of religious types. And you, you can't just say, well, because a majority of people think that way, or I'm well-reasoned, and I think that way, it doesn't exist. I don't want to be part of that company that is rudely surprised. So I'm not asking you to accept hell blindly and condemn everyone to hell who doesn't believe exactly the same way you believe in. But here's the thing. If you don't believe, you will go to hell. I say that unapologetically. I say that with compassion. So having fronted this part of his argument with the consequences of apostasy, he now presents various characteristics of ungodly church people. Again, remember, there's some overlap here. So the second expectation we see in verses 11 through 13 is what I would call self-assertion. Self-assertion, and he, he says here, woe to them. So that kind of language is all over the Old Testament. Woe to them. A synonym for this is just wretchedness. These people are wretched. In verse 11, their wretchedness has an what I would call an ancestry of opportunism. Okay, Here we have a simple list of some of the Bible's most notorious apostates. 
All right, so this isn't everybody, but these are some, you know, the, this is the unfortunate who's who of unbelievers. Cain. <clears throat> Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain. That's coming out of Genesis 4. Remember, Cain goes to sacrifice. Cain is already irreverent. He is unrighteous because God asked for a good sacrifice, and apparently they knew the standards, but he's like, man, I'm a farmer. I know how to, I know how to work the system. I'm just going to bring something that should be good enough. No, and God rejected it, and he became jealous. He became envious, and what does he do? He murders his brother. Then there's this guilt on him. You murdered your brother, and God exiles Cain. So Cain in this text stands as a metaphor for hatred and other sins. What, what Jude is not doing, he's not saying, hey, some of you out there in your church, some of you murdered somebody, and the Jewish FBI is coming for you. That's not, that's not what's going on. But he's saying at the heart of being like Cain and walking in the paths of Cain is to be marked by hatred and other sins like lust, envy, jealousy, robbery. Even though Cain was exiled as a result of murdering his brother, and then Cain went around, sure, a marked man, we can't, I don't think, well, from what the New Testament says about Cain, I don't think we can expect to see Cain in heaven. See, to be like Cain is to be a hater of the truth. And if you're a hater of the truth, you will actually come to hate people of the truth. Don't believe me? Don't. Believe 1 John 3.11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So Cain is the first one. Don't walk in the way of Cain. Then, then our text goes, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam comes in Numbers 22 to 24, those three chapters. Kind of a Kind of an interesting fella. Though he was supposed to do good on behalf of Israel, and he did a little bit of good. He was, he was hired to curse Israel, and God wouldn't let him curse Israel. But later on, Balaam committed an act where he actually duped the whole nation of Israel into committing egregious acts of immorality. And he got paid for it. So the error of Balaam is profiting off the spiritual downfall of others. That existed in the first century, and it exists in the 22nd century. In a sense, nothing's changed. Just a cast of characters, this ancestry of opportunists, spiritually speaking. And then, in a bit anachronistic fashion, you have Korah, who comes in, Number 16, so Jude isn't following biblical order exactly here. He's, he's reserving the worst for last to make a point. It says here, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Who's Korah? Korah was part of the Levitical priestly family. He was a special. But you know what? Korah wasn't content. He saw Aaron, kind of the predecessor of the priestly line. He saw Moses doing these great acts and leading the people, and he was discontent. He didn't like that they were in charge. Just read this in, in Numbers 16. 
And so he, it wasn't just like grumbling in his tent. No, he made like an official, like, let's get the people together and, and wage a complaint against these guys. And that's exactly what he did. So he disputed Moses' leadership over Israel, and he becomes the proverbial rebel as his reputation throughout the rest of Scripture. This is not the guy whose name is on the book in Psalms, okay? Different guy, all right? What happens? God says, all right, let Korah and his family and all his followers, let them show up. And what happens? The reason why this is reserved for the last in the list is because the ground literally opened up and ate and consumed Korah and his family in their rebellion. It was that serious to lodge, a, a, to dispute God's leaders that they basically went to hell. The opening up of the earth is once again just another nail in the coffin of what he's trying to make the case for is that to rebel in the fashion of Korah is to invite personal destruction and hellfire to yourself. So the wretchedness of apostasy, no matter what the era, manifests itself in the kind of opportunism that apostates assert themselves into churches for their own evangelism. That's why I say, you know, these guys, uh, Cain, Balaam, Korah, are, is, they're like the ancestry of opportunists. They just weren't like guys who were, you know, in the background. No, they were looking for an opportunity in a sense, and they went for it. That's what apostates do. That's what heretics do. They self-assert to their own advantage. Cain wanted the advantage of living an unrighteous life without consequences. That's not just a Cain problem. That's a you and me problem. That's a 2023 problem. Balaam wanted financial benefit at the cost of moral uprightness. Let me see the money, and I'll turn a blind eye to to what happens morally. I I don't really care being profitable. And Korah, who confused equity and equality, wanted the advantage of more visible leadership. This is not to say that Korah was rightly challenging leadership. Yes, leaders should be challenged. But if you're reading into the story of Korah and Jude's interpretation of it as like, oh, I should challenge my authorities. No, you're missing it. To the peril of your soul. There is the kind of challenging of authority and disputing God's authorities in a way that is harmful to your soul and is actually harmful to the souls around you. Jude is not saying, I just want a bunch of lemmings in the church that follow you know, a strong leader. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there are people who know how to challenge leaders in wrong ways, and they will lead the church astray if you let them. Their wretchedness means that they are dangerous and devoid of substance. He gets into verses 12 and 13 here. He's self-asserting church people. They shamelessly, says they're without fear, they shamelessly and selfishly, they feed themselves. They shamelessly and selfishly participate in the life of the church as if nothing is wrong. It says, these people are hidden reefs at your love feast. <laughs> like, what's that? Way to mix metaphors, dude. Reefs and love feasts? What are we talking about? 
All right, reefs are reefs. Could be real reefs. Often they were those kinds of rocks close to harbor that would endanger a ship from landing safely. The very kind of rocks or reefs that would destroy a ship completely. That's what he's talking about here. They're hidden. You can't see them. You can hardly navigate them. At your love feast, what are you talking about? We think this is harking back to like 1 Corinthians 11 and communion. So whether the love feasts, which is a very holy, upright part of the church, where the church ate together, some people think they, they broke bread before they had a meal, and then after a, a normal meal, they, they drank the wine together as to celebrate the communion, their communion in Christ. The point is, is it, was a, it was the normal part of the church life. And Judah's saying, you know what? These people show up to church, and they participate as if nothing is wrong. Not only are they a danger to themselves, but they put a whole congregation at risk. They may, be, they, they may be able to influence whole churches, which is the idea of shepherding. They may not be officially elected pastors, but they perhaps have the clout and the influence that is somewhat pastoral. Their lurking presence and influence is more like an infection. And friends... Don't think, oh, man, that's too bad that happened in Jude's time. Friends, it can happen here. We're not playing church here. We're not just playing religion. This happens. This is why you, you, you have to take your membership your, at this church seriously. You either steer clear of these people or you remove the reef. You want your church just to blow up and get shattered by these kinds of people? Oh, you know, I'm not that confrontational. I, I, you know, they're nice. You know what? That's the funny thing about these kinds of reefs and rocks. They're the nicest looking reefs and rocks ever. They're in our churches. Oh, yeah, even though they're painted as being wolves in the church, they're really nice people. They smile well. They're you know, maybe they're attractive, maybe they're not, but they, they can be convincing and persuasive. They're likable. And so you want to know what their characteristics are? Their self-assertion, their wretchedness, this wretched reputation of self-assertion is sealed by Jude's comparing them to the natural world, sky, earth, sea, the solar system. Let's read these. They are waterless clouds, swept along by winds. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Meaning, waterless clouds, you know, Israel, Palestine being the, the kind of country that, or, or terrain that it was, and being a farming kind of, I mean, they banked on those full clouds for rain. So if you're living in that kind of environment, man, you see the clouds coming and you're like, oh, Lord, may this be, uh, I mean, may these be clouds that pour out rain. No, nope. these kinds of people in the church, they're waterless clouds. They don't have anything to them. They're devoid of substance. They're swept along by winds. 
They're fruitless trees in autumn, twice dead and uprooted, whether that means that they made a profession of faith and it was never real. But the point is, is that these are not Christians, and somehow they're in the congregation. They're dead. This is not unlike what Jesus says, that in the kingdom of God, the true Christians, the wheat, will grow up with the tares, with the weeds. They're dead. They have nothing to show spiritually. They're wild waves of the sea casting up foam. Here's another way to put it. A lot of bark, no bite. A lot of talk, no substance. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, this is interesting. Don't impose your very Galilean, Copernican view of the solar system right now. Because in the ancient time, ancients at this time, they saw planets, they saw stars, they thought they were out of, off course. So the very word for planets here is the same word, a few verses back for error, error of Balaam, which means wandering. The ancients of this time thought that just planets just wandered around, that they weren't on course, that they were off course. So that was the mentality of everyone, right or wrong, okay? But the application is right. These people are way off course. And as one commentator said, he said, movement is good, but not in the wrong direction. And that's where these people are headed. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Again, fire, darkness, eternal conscious torment. Their danger and lack of substance makes them ultimately unstable and untrustworthy. And guess what? A good, healthy church probably will steer these people away from our church. Praise God. But you know what they do? Let's just go find another place. In a, in a congregation this size, no doubt, coming from wherever you come from, there are these kinds of people that have come into your church or will come into your church back home or our church. You say, I thought we do like membership interviews and things like that, and don't we try to protect the front door of the church? Yes, yes, but the elders are not omniscient. <laughs> we can't see everything. People often change. And notice the connections of the pattern so far. In verse 5 and verse 10, you have the word destroyed. You see how that kind of anchors that? That section, Israel was destroyed and Sodom was destroyed. Or the, um, um, what does he say in verse 10? I can't, I need bigger, better glasses. These people blaspheme. They, do not, they are destroyed. So whether you're part of the old time people, you're destroyed. You're destroyed now. And you are judged, verse 6, I believe also verse 15. There's the difference between the historical and temporal. That generation back then and the eternal applications to the contemporary church. Folks, don't think that just because it happened back then, it's not going to happen to us. Be on guard. People who worm their way into churches and start asserting themselves with their particular ideas, challenging God-given authority and sound doctrine can hamstring whole churches. They're unstable, they're untrustworthy. Ungodly church people will be judged eternally. The last expectation of an apostate is actually no surprise, folks. But Jude wants to leave no doubt in our minds. So verses 14 to 16 he says the last expectation is that of godlessness. 
And then again, he goes to the book of Enoch here. Because if you went back to Genesis, you wouldn't find much about Enoch saying anything. But he, he, he quotes from this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed. Now, whether or not you're familiar with a, an apocryphal book like that, sounds pretty biblical. Sounds like you could get that from other parts of Scripture. We can. And Jude borrowed from this material. And the Holy Spirit, ultimately, the Holy Spirit led Jude to these different texts. So it was rightly prophesied, rightly stated. Remember, a quote from a non-canonical writing isn't necessarily an endorsement of the whole work itself. Jude is not saying, okay, after you read my letter, go read First Enoch. No. And notice all the emphasis on ungodliness. It's there like four times, right? Ungodliness is a lack of piety and reverence toward God. That's the funny thing. Ungodly church people, it should sound weird. It should sound off, but it's real. And there's coming an eternal judgment where the unrighteousness that is not dealt with at the cross will be exposed and dealt with in the judgment. God is coming. God's judgment is coming. He will judge unrighteousness. And then in verse 16, he crisply portrays and summarizes this. These are grumblers, malcontents, or grumbling malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters. They're, they're just blustering, blubbering fools, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's all about themselves. They are self-centered. They do what it takes to be noticed. They do what it takes to be followed. They do what it takes to get control. These are the kind of people that Timothy, Paul told Timothy, he says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of the gospel to change ungodly people. Friends, this is a pretty bleak text. <laughs> but let's remember that Jesus is a selfless shepherd who gave us his meal. Jesus is that shepherd who seeks lost sheep. He gives his life for them. And so in terms of application, I just want to quickly just give you four as a church. So think the whole church. Um, I just want to quote straight out of our fellowship covenant that we will strive to advance a faithful gospel ministry and we will welcome and faithfully guard sound doctrine, sound biblical instruction. Those aren't just words that are dusty that, you know, we forget about. But is that you? Do you see yourself as part of the church, as having that responsibility? This is why, hint, hint, every year we do renewals of our fellowship covenant, of our doctrinal beliefs. We ask you, do you still believe this? Because we don't assume. Are you still striving to live like this? Because we don't assume that it's that easy to live by, our, by the fellowship covenant, to live biblically. So as a church, we need to be mindful and active in keeping our lives and keeping our doctrine. How about individual Christian? I want to encourage you, watch your heart. Who do you listen to? Who is, who is leading you? 
I, I, this has been hitting me lately, and I feel it needs to be said. It comes from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul was going at the Corinthians. He says, you guys have a lot of spiritual guides, but few spiritual fathers. Meaning, the way you do your spirituality is this podcast, and this radio station, and this TV show, and this blog, and this TikTok, and you piece together your spiritual formation from many spiritual guides. But your relationship to the church is at best strained and distant. And if you want to push against apostasy personally, I'm not saying just go to the church and just blindly just sit there and receive. And I'm saying, no, entrust your soul to Jesus by entrusting your soul to shepherds. Don't resist God-given authority. Now, Surely our church, I hope it's not true, but surely there are ungodly people in church. And I want to ask you, are you self-deceived? Are you the one who has to keep telling yourself that, oh, I believe all of that, but you don't have the power. The power is not there. The will, the passion to follow Jesus isn't there. You'd rather... You'd rather just sit through program after program after program or flirt with immorality or flirt with greed than spend time with God's people and in his word. You, though you may not be, have the, you may not have the platform to influence people. You are already straying off course yourself. You're like that wandering planet. I want to ask you, and I have to ask this, do you think you know more than the church? Do you think you know more than the Holy Spirit? Because people who start messing with the church, they start questioning the church's doctrine. They don't talk about the Holy Spirit, or they do, as if they're the only one the Holy Spirit has spoken to. That is apostasy. Are you always criticizing the church? Oh, friends, do not, do not drink the Kool-Aid of deconstruction where people who are just flirting and floating out all their ideas about why the church is wrong and how the church has hurt all these people, and I'm not questioning that some of those things legitimately happen, but if that's who you listen to, and if that's where the dial of your radio is tuned to, you are floating off course. And I ask you, I beg you, crush that radio. Turn that station off. Because you will find yourself floating and wandering. Little by little. I'm not saying this because I'm better than you. I'm saying this is because I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to question. Just because I get to preach God's word like this does not make me immune to being this. Oh, that we might take of God's grace in Christ, our selfless shepherd, and entrust ourselves to him. Say, Lord, I am prone to wander. I am prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. 
We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.